You're listening to Some Pulp, a Sunrise Robot Show. Welcome to Some Pulp. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and I will serve as your guide to an era before the advent of digital media. I hope to take us on a journey much like an archaeologist or anthropologist might, trying to discover what was modern life like before smartphones, digital music, Netflix. For many, this is a completely foreign country to our consciousness, defying our preferred expectations, our sense of privileged access. It is this world, though, seemingly distant and hermeneutically backward, that some Paul proposes to explore and excavate, if you will, and interpret as if it were a mysterious ancient culture. Now to the title of our show, Some Pulp. I say it refers dually to two main aspects of the development of 20th century popular culture and guides our exploration of it in the 21st century. First of all, pulp is the residue of what's left behind when you reduce a citrus fruit to a liquid, a juice. Some juice manufacturers boast of having some pulp in their containers, referring to this substantial, tactile stuff that makes the sensation of drinking palpable and memorable. And we hope that as we look into early culture, uh, early popular culture in particular, that some of this pulp will, in a sensory way, make us feel what our past mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters did before the digital world. Secondly, pulp is also the remainder out of which paper is made from wood processing. It's the stuff by which most paper of the 20th century was was made. Now, it's anachronism in the digital age, as we read through screens and digital messages on the alternate medium of reading through uh, the technology provided by Kindle and other readers. But it's helpful to point out how this revolution, this this tremendous democratizing of of, uh, knowledge was made possible through this very cheaply made paper which could then be sold at very accessible prices, hence the phrase the dime novel. Now, Pulp Fiction refers to a 50s model of, of printing at a low cost and then being able to sell it to the masses, which at once democratizes and makes more and more available the ideas and narratives and worldviews, which would never surface in a more elitist culture. So on this series of shows, we'll look at the pulp of culture, if you will. We'll examine the kinds of media through which knowledge and entertainment are packaged and delivered. We'll, we'll take a look back and see how stories were told and how songs were made and marketed and and broadcast, and and how it was rendered to the public, and where you were able to buy such things. 
Who were the leaders, the influencers, the prophets that led to many of the 21st century's innovations? As well as we'll notice our odd anachronisms and how analog culture differs from digital culture, but why it still retains the power to challenge and disrupt our ways of construing knowledge, disrupt our ways of discovering what is true about our world and why. In this first show of Some Pulp, we will be looking at the phenomenon of a half-hour TV anthology drama that debuted in 1959 on the CBS television network, Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Every episode in the anthology began with a very specific narrative. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of the imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In this first show, I'm glad to be joined tonight by two other guests who are happy to be called my sons. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Mike Edwards, a son. I'm another one of the sons, Justin. So I like Twilight Zone as a starting place just because it, it is so influential. It is um, something that almost everyone has at least heard of, and they've heard that music, and they've they think of it. Maybe they have certain, even if they're not correct, they they have an idea of what it is. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people have uh, seen or re- recounted the plot of a Twilight Zone episode without knowing it because they're so so much a part of the building block of storytelling. And I, I think uh, one of the things about the, the Twilight Zone is I think there may be, what, 150 episodes, some some half hour, uh, some were longer, and then there have been at least two different reiterations or resurrections of the show. Uh, interestingly enough, all of them on CBS. The original, and then one came back in the 80s. I think there was another try in the 90s. There was a movie version tried... But uh, Rod Serling, the originator, was a very uh, promising and, and uh, young and ambitious playwright who did a lot of teleplays. He eventually wrote the teleplays for, uh, or expanded the teleplays into movie scripts, and, and very famous and so so uh, so notable. Uh, his picture, his voice, his stance, his uh, ever-present cigarette. I mean, he, he's a well-known figure. That mechanic of the fourth-wall-breaking guy that strolls into frame to say something mysterious to you. And, and if you watch an episode from each of, let's say, three eras, the first season and the third and the fifth, or he's more and more aggressively present in the episodes uh, toward the end of the Twilight Zone series for CBS. Um, but I, I, one of the premises for, for exploring this is both to illuminate uh, what it was to view uh, a TV show as a series and have certain expectations set from one week to the next. And these, are, of course, were seasons that didn't just have 22 episodes, but you probably got 36 episodes of of this show and, and you know, most of the westerns of the time as well. 
And, uh, you know, there could be some shifts and changes in the uh, people who were uh, populating the scripts and the the uh, landscapes of those westerns and so forth. But uh, pretty much you were seeing the same sorts of characters, but not in the Twilight Zone. There, there was sort of an ensemble cast. There were characters who visited the the uh, Twilight Zone again as different sorts of people and Villains sometimes, and sometimes uh, heroes, and sometimes uh, victims. Um, and uh, Serling was uh, was very meticulous about uh, who he allowed to write for the Twilight Zone, as well as who he wanted to act in the uh, playgrounds of the Twilight Zone. And there's some very famous people who who show up in these episodes. We watched uh, one earlier today. Uh, in which uh, Ronnie Howard shows up as just a kid yeah. <laughs> uh, in uh, Walking Distances that has a very famous uh, presence in the, in the Twilight Zone series for what it evokes about the typical Twilight Zone theme, which uh, maybe we'll, we'll get to in a little more precision in a moment. But um, maybe I can just ask... Uh, you two, what images you have in your mind when somebody says the Twilight Zone? I mean, almost everybody knows what that means somehow, even if they've never seen it. Yeah. For me, it's Twilight Zone, like if I had to oversimplify it down to like a, a single idea or something, is very often it was trying to turn things on their head or surprise you with a setting or a development or like the unexpected happening, the unexplainable and... I mean, almost to a gimmick level of, like, twist endings, M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, definitely never afraid to end badly for who you're rooting for. Um, just a number of episodes where it's, you know, oh, and then he's trapped there forever. That's the end, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, uh, Serling is, uh, I think, unafraid is a, is a good word because uh, what we take for granted in network TV especially, but uh, even now in, in uh, uh, what, what do we call it, not just pay cable, we used to call it when, when we didn't have cable, but... Uh, Two words, pay and able. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, HBO, subscription, uh, premium subscription cable. Um, you know, they're reworking ideas that he had uh, long ago, and sometimes we see a show uh, episode from Twilight Zone and say, well... That didn't seem that terrifying, or that doesn't seem that that uh, paradoxical. But he's doing it for the first time, and for an audience that's crossed the country for the first time, uh, and uh, you know, and radio has a lot to do with that. And in some of the uh, the shows of the '40s and, and '50s, they're still being broadcast and have avid listeners, like Serial does today. Apparently, um, the uh, the premise is that because you can't see the actors and they have to do everything by voice and sound and special effect, they can surprise you, they can scare you. You're in your own darkened room with a, a light on, uh, with a, a large radio as as a conduit for these ideas and thoughts. And uh, you know these these radio scripts became visible. F- for the first time in a show like The Twilight Zone. And, you know, had people remembering these stories for years. And uh, C.S. Lewis said one time that George MacDonald, a favorite of his, wasn't the 
the, the best writer of fantasy, but he's the best uh, creator of myth, so that if you just barely get the outline of the story, it stays with you forever. And so if it's about dragons or, or demons or a faraway uh, quest and so on and so forth, um, that experience, it's exhilarating and it stays with you. Or a princess and a goblin. Exactly. But uh, let, let's talk about watching an episode. And uh, pick pick one. Mike, you've been here looking at some of these with me. Yeah, well, we already mentioned Walking Distance, which has a, a man a man in his 30s who's kind of uh, been dried up by the city life, by his career. He's kind of uh, on a road trip, and he stops at a gas station and notices uh, the sign for his hometown that he grew up in. And he decides... You know, he finds out like there's there's some little mechanic like, oh, I need an oil change. It's going to take an hour. I guess I'll walk to my hometown I grew up in. And uh, the, the Twilight Zone twist to this is as he steps into his old town, it's actually his town as it was when he was a child. And uh, it's just a nostalgia journey through what, what his life used to be. Homewood, in fact, is the name of yeah, the town. Yeah, it's, it's very on the nose. <laughs> Homewood, <laughs> yeah. wood being the on the nose part. Um, and the uh, the actor who plays uh, Martin uh, is Gig Young, who who in the '60s was the equivalent or the the uh, evocation of today's madman. He was the swinging '60s sort of guy, and he's actually playing. A role like that in this episode of Twilight Zone, but he was he was in series that you know uh, forced him to, to kind of be this uh, uh, mad uh, artist, yeah, this Don Draper character. And uh, what what I noticed as I'm you know watching and listening and, and seeing the use of black and white, and it's very crisp. It's the clashes of music, the clashes of the fancy car he's got. He uh, he's bewildered by the the seeming changelessness, changelessness of the town. And of course, I'm I'm as a an original viewer. I don't know what's going to happen now as a viewer and. You know, 2014. I I know this plot backwards and forwards. It's been a graphic novel, and uh, it's it's one of the most celebrated uh, tales in the Twilight Zone canons. But as a result, uh, I think it's possible to overlook how subtle he weaves his uh, his tale because it's a very common theme in the Twilight Zone for somebody to revisit an experience, revisit a person. It's not always time travel. Sometimes it's memory. Sometimes it's wistful. Uh, I wonder what would have happened if I'd taken this other road, this choice. So they're not always uh, <clears throat> resolved with someone losing something, uh, but people always gain some perspective. And, and uh, Serling is, is giving you these 30-minute or maybe 22-minute sermons uh, about uh, don't let this culture... You know, destroy you or eat you up because uh, we're going mass media and everybody's seeing the same thing at once and we have network news for the first time, that sort of thing. And so he plugs in these, these plots about people having to look in the mirror in the past, sometimes literally. Well, it's funny you bring up mirrors because of that's the mechanic he uses in walking distance to send, a, not to send him, he walks to his town, but to send us 
with him is basically it pans over to a mirror at the gas station and it cuts to a mirror in the soda pop ice cream parlor that it pans down to him arriving at. And so it's sort of a through the looking glass kind of moment. And they do the same thing at the end of the episode. To, well, similar thing. It's a merry-go-round that cross cuts straight into a spinning uh, record of the gas station. So a lot of those very intentional shape and context cuts. The, the usual opening to a Twilight Zone episode, and I, I'm going to read one that actually wasn't used, but a variation of it was used. <clears throat> this highway leads to the shadowy tip of reality. You're on a through route to the land of the different, the bizarre, the unexplainable. Go as far as you like on this road. Its limits are only those of the mind itself. Ladies and gentlemen, you're entering the wondrous dimension of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. And uh, that, if you've seen enough of these, you know that's not doesn't sound quite like the the version you've heard because he tinkered with it, uh, and it changes uh, even within the the season that you're watching. Uh, and it usually has the last word of an episode is the Twilight Zone because you've been led through the Twilight Zone. But I'm thinking of just that that phrase. I don't know what else it could have been called. You know, there have been shows called The Outer Limits and Tales of the Imagination, those sorts of things. But just that three-word phrase has lasting impact on most people's sense of something absurd, something ridiculous, something outrageous, something terrible, uh, something insipid. I mean, it's a, it's a phrase like Catch-22. Somebody invented it. In this case, Serling invented the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you read that monologue, I was reminded of, and this is sort of an anachronistic, wrong direction of history uh, way to refer to this, but I thought of like Willy Wonka or like uh, maybe someone at a circus or, a, you know, a, a tour guide who isn't just interested in you enjoying yourself, but is kind of kind of has weird other motives or, or um, not that he's out to harm you or something, but he, he's got more going on than just hey, this is an interesting thing. And I just looked up Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. came out in 64, the book, so it was after this episode happened. But I'm sure there's a, a more relevant reference earlier to this kind of narrator or just in a context of a story, the, the, the tour guide that um, isn't just a, a blank slate tour guide. Yeah, and I, you know, there are probably other Raoul Dahl stories that precede this that have the same kind of effect. Yeah, and uh, like, uh, well, <laughs> it seems like Willy Wonka is the easiest. One yeah, it is the easiest one. He's like a leader. Yeah, leader. Welcome to my wild world that's unlike yours, and you know. Yeah, but there's ha- more than meets the eye. Obviously, maybe a haunted house. If the guy that walks you through it, or yeah, exactly, come to my house of horrors. Um. Well, just to just sum up, uh, walking distance uh, it, that that has two meanings, like most uh, Twilight Zone episodes have in their titles. He he learns from the mechanic that the town is indeed within walking distance, so he has time to to leave for a while. And uh, you know, central to this episode is he runs into himself as a little boy. And his mom and dad, whom he knows he's lost a long time ago. But here's a chance to see 
and talk to his dad, and he calls him mom and calls him pop, and he's hurt that he can't be the boy anymore. And uh, you know, in in the twisted world, he ends up causing an accident that hurts the young Martin in real time so that he himself feels the same pain as the little boy does. Little looper precursor. Exactly. On yeah. a, uh, a merry-go-round. And, and so you know somebody like Ryan Johnson and, and, and other creative thinkers owe so much to somebody like Rod Serling. But I would argue that so many more people who have heard from a friend who heard this story about this episode that they'll never connect the dots to – it, in this case, and, and maybe a couple others will sample quickly, um, Shirley is really creating a kind of American who is susceptible to but also wary of being deceived and, and being um, manipulated. And uh, uh, he's, he's always trying to get you to look out for not a surprise ending, but who's got something to gain or lose in this panorama of people and places and circumstances and uh that's that's when i think the 60s start turning toward more self-aware and uh, much more self-critical treatments of american themes and uh instead of them being um i'd say early early 50s but even a lot of, of of movies are about heroic homesteaders and the lone Outlaw who turns into really a good guy who's going to save the uh, the town from the evil sheriff. The Those reluctant, sorts of things. retired yeah. sheriff. Yeah, Gary Cooper in High Noon, uh, Jimmy Stewart in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Those start coming, and and I, I want to mention that there's there's one episode uh, that uh, Serling is responsible for for called Showdown with Lance McGrew, in which he he actually takes up a. a uh, the theme of the uh, 60s Western, and he has a, a, a show built around Rance McGrew and a real Western character who once lived in the Old West challenges Lance McGrew, the actor, to a gunfight. And, of course, Lance is no gunfighter. He's, he's actually very timid, and uh, it's only when they say action that he's a big bravado character actor who's going to save the West. Uh, He doesn't want any part of this heroic uh, genre. Uh, He, you know, he doesn't want John Ford his, as his director. He's happy with this uh, TV guy who'll cut him off every 15 minutes because he can't remember his lines or, and so on and so forth. Certainly was very self-critical. I think he created a generation of TV watchers, who could then go on to watch shows like The Fugitive with uh, David um, Jansen and uh, eventually shows like Star Trek, uh, slightly different kinds of science fiction storytelling because uh, Serling has done all of those genres. He's done the Western. He's done the hard-boiled private eye. He has done the timid uh, librarian sort of fellow who turns out to be the last survivor of a nuclear war. He, 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 he runs the gamut of those things. But I want to I want to talk about uh, the invader, and uh, I know is, Mikey watched that. Yeah, before we sat down to watch some more of the other episodes, this was the one that I remembered. I don't know when I saw it or why. Probably on, 
you know, Turner Classic or one of these other channels that plays old TV, maybe Nick at Night. I don't know. They play Twilight Zone. But The Invaders uh, is, from the perspective of the viewer, it's, it's, a, it's a lady who lives kind of in the middle of nowhere with her own little, her little wooden shack. And she's just trying to cook a meal and a, a little tiny UFO lands on her roof. And there's these little men in it in these big spacesuits, not big spacesuits, these little men in spacesuits. And they are just terrorizing her, you know, chasing her around the house, finding weapons like they cut part of her hand um, or her leg. And she's like killing them, basically, and defending herself. And the, the twist ending at the end of the episode is, and this is this is probably what gives it the M. Night Shyamalan reputa- reputation for some of Twilight Zone is a, the, a long, slow zoom into the spaceship while you hear a radio broadcast. And you find out it's an American ship, and they're basically telling everyone back at in whatever space station or back on Earth, don't come here. There's, there's a giant. Our ship is destroyed. It's over for us. Um, it's over. <laughs> and, yeah, it's great. And it's just... Oh, she's not some old some little lady in a shack. She's a giant alien woman. <laughs> <laughs> that happens in the last what forty five seconds of yeah, the episode. Yeah, very the very end of the episode. The Spoiler point of, alert. The point of view is you are rooting for her, mm-hmm. and uh, you know because he's twisting you because we're used to thinking of the alien as the enemy who's come to hurt us, and we're the enemy in this, and. Uh, it's it's quite startling. I think it's still like it's still a pretty terrifying episode, even if you know the ending. Just watching her, like just imagining that happening to you, it would be horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> just little men that just show up. <laughs> it's an episode uh, written by a very uh, famous uh, science fiction writer, but also screenwriter Richard Matheson, um, and. Uh, He's, he wrote uh, some of the, the things that Will Smith has done and so forth. He, he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, but he was w- one of the, the most uh, used writers by Rod Serling. And again, Serling didn't trust just anybody to write an episode for him. And uh, he, uh, he came to rely upon uh, uh, Matheson to be able to, to do that. And... Uh, uh, his 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 last uh, screenplay was actually Real Steel with Hugh Jackman, but uh, I mention that because he was he was fascinated by artificial intelligence, uh, uh, how robots can come to serve and or uh, uh, overshadow humankind, and another writer who wrote about that was the famous Ray Bradbury, whose story was adapted by uh, uh, Serling uh, for uh, an episode called. I uh, sing uh, the body electric, and we watched uh, watched this. Uh, we, it, it really is a, a very creepy episode. Uh, a mother has died. Uh, her husband now has to take care of three kids, and uh, eventually they're going to visit a very special shop right off of Main Street. All along, there's been somebody lurking there to put together. Uh, Robots who can be surrogate grandmas, and uh, the the thing is, this scene opens with the three kids coming down the stairs, just like every other nineteen fifties family would assemble, you know, like 
Avengers assemble and lean, in lean their, your heads over the railing. Yeah, and, and smile sweetly. And maybe there's a theme song, and and uh, uh, and but it has this really dreadful, uh, mournful sort of uh, tone, even the background music, uh, and uh, it's. Uh, it's not comforting at all, and of course you don't know immediately. It's it's about you know, someone who's been lost and they, is going to be replaced by a robot. Uh, yeah, I just remember it was so stark. Like they come down the stairs and they're just eavesdropping on the the father talking to like a cleaning maid or, or someone who is basically lecturing the father, saying, "You aren't enough for your kids. You need to do something so that they have the love and support they need." And he was like trying to disagree, but then that's eventually persuasive to him. But the other thing about this intro is you, you get you were mentioning earlier that Rod Serling would play with how he would intrude on the episode. And in this one, instead of him strolling in with a cigar or cigarette or um, you know just around the corner, he, the camera does a hard and sudden pan over to what I presume is like an office in this house, and he's sitting at the desk. And he just talks to you over the desk, and it's just like this sudden uh, pan over. Yeah, he's obviously getting more comfortable with the role of uh, MC as well as uh, you know, breaking breaking the wall there for for the rest of the the audience. Um, but even even the the uh, the typical things that that might occur in a movie about artificial intelligence or a robot today, they they go into this darkened room, and there's a tree of eyes that they can choose from. There's a, a set of uh, hair colors and links that they can choose. You know, in some ways, uh, it's very reductive. It's like a mother is more than how she looks or how she appears, but that seems to be what's what's being emphasized. And they put on headphones and listen to her voice. Or, right. I don't know if they put on headphones, but they have buttons to play back tones of voice to choose. Like, oh, that's too deep, <laughs> that's too high. And um, Yeah, I think I'm, 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 there's pr- countless modern things that would be influenced by this little shop of horrors that you go into to choose your new grandmother. But I was thinking of the video game Bioshock with its retro future ads for the powers you get. So you get genetically modified in this game. And they have like these cartoonish characters with that that uh, radio announcer that comes on to say, use your plasmid firepower. Use it in this way. Burn things down. <laughs> the... Uh- Climax of this one, and I guess this is spoiler hour for Twilight Zone episodes, watchers, but uh, to to show how it's influenced other writers and and, and thinkers, one of the one of the young ladies in the in the household doesn't accept her. You know, she's artificial. She's she's inauthentic, or uh, and and it, it turns out she's blaming her mother for leaving her after promising her she would never leave. And so the robot assumes the role of I, I'm invincible, I'm I'm immortal, and uh, I can love you forever. Uh, I, yeah, unlike your mom, so I'm actually better than your mom, uh, better built, you know, long lasting, and so forth. Who knows how much she costs and what the subscription is for her? Because she she does play with the kids, but she also cleans and cooks, and. Uh, it, it, one of the ironies of this story is uh, that the the character who's playing the dad turns out to be the boss in Bewitched, 
who of course gets gets to uh, preside over uh, Darren and Samantha, and you know learns something about a, another kind of uh, artificial intelligence or witchcraft. And also in Bewitched is Agnes Moorhead, who was in the episode you were talking about, Michael, uh, the Invader. And so a lot of these characters end up being in other kinds of sitcoms and, and drama stories of the, of the early 60s who are, are sort of in the Rod Serling stable and, and uh, get, uh, get transported from one dimension to another in uh, the evolving TV universe. Um, but the robot saves the life of the little girl, and the robot's destroyed. It's kind of a hilarious bit of, quotes, action in the story. Because yeah. a, a car almost hits her and slams on the brakes, but just the, this, clearly we are, we are not in the same era. The way it would be filmed now would have had crazy angles and shaky cams and you know POV shots of a car about to hit. Like, it, it was very square and staged and didn't feel threatening compared to the way <laughs> the way it would be shot now it was almost silly to me so uh when when rod returns to this uh, scene he is uh um uh, quoting i sing the body of like uh, electric a few more lines which is actually from walt whitman the great american poet who is always uh uh, celebratory of American values and American uh, uh, in, ingenuity, in, in a sense, and the, the resiliency of the American spirit. And Sterling uh, uh, just decides to pack that into a, a robot, and uh, everyone goes home happy. And then at the very end, which is very unusual for, for an episode like this, we, we no longer are with them as children anymore. We've seen them graduated uh, leaving home, and uh, Grandma is going to be returned to the shop yeah. to be decommissioned, and maybe she'll be uh, reworked or redone or uh, somehow. Uh, re- <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know, if, uh, you know what what the language was there, but it, it was it was in a, in a certain sense a ghastly conclusion to a happy ending. Yeah, it was already happy, and then they're like, "What's going to happen to you, Grandma?" And it's like, "Oh, they'll they'll put me in a room with the other decommissioned robots, and we'll talk to each other about what we learned for a while before we're turned off." <laughs> Jeez. I, what stood out to me in the episode was uh, the the daughter that didn't accept the the new grandma. Um, she kept referring to, and this played into the theme of why she didn't want a new caretaker because she felt betrayed by the death of her mother. But she referred to her mother's death as she ran away, and this this gets, it's not an accident in the script. It gets said like six different times. Um, my mother ran away from me, and so it's not just oh she's dead. It's she abandoned me. She left me, and that's contrasted with the robot that will never leave you. It all makes me. Um, I know, Dad. We showed you this uh, a pilot from Charlie Kaufman that right. unfortunately wasn't picked up. Um, I'll have to show it to Mike sometime too. But you know, I it it lives in the Twilight Zone. Absolutely, um, it's the one Juliet was working on right. this year called "How and Why." Uh, but yeah, about a family and American values, and like there's strange things and ghosts and yeah well it's it's what what i want to emphasize here is that uh, these were not possible topics in american households 
until they appeared on the Twilight Zone. Because, you know, Serling introduced us to a space where anything could happen and, um, and in happening, you know, could have closure, uh, uh, within the, when the episode that, uh, was the end of an episode, but for Serling, it was leaving you something that's actually quite haunting. And if you think about it for a little bit, um, they've been raised by a robot for 15 years of their lives because they've grown up. And uh, they're they're not at all surprised. Somehow it's become normalized. It's, be, it's become part of who they are. And so... She's like a vacuum cleaner who came to stay, or she's you know, she's just a really really <laughs> smart appliance. And of course, my you know, I, I think of her with uh, uh, another another uh, Kaufman devotee in 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 that uh, movie behind the movie, uh, and just just how the the. Uh, Craziness and uh, oddness of life become normalized, and and Serling is trying not to let that happen. He wants you to see what's happening, so you aren't befuddled by it. You 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 have some some chance to maintain your not only your dignity but but your uh, uh, honor and uh, sense of propriety and your humanity. And uh, uh, there there's uh, a lot going on in a in an episode, and uh, I think it's mostly watched again as a early science fiction show, and it is that. But there's a real uh, streak of, uh, I would say, uh, uh, criticism and uh, challenge to the emerging uh, American consciousness that uh, goes goes beyond just simple science fiction. Well, any other comments uh, about stories connected to this? I, I, I was thinking while we were talking about uh, the uh, invaders. That in fact, that's the end of the original, the Plan of the Apes. You, you don't know where this is happening, and then suddenly the Statue of Liberty shows up, and you know the uh, the evil, crazy guys are the original inhabitants, the the first humans. Um, the only other thing I thought we could mention, and Justin, I'll have to send you a link to this, is we inadvertently watched a 1982 episode of The Twilight Zone. So uh, clearly we're in the, the one of the failed resurrections, um, starring Bruce Willis. And, oh, I think I remember that. And so it's it's... It was hard for me to get over. That's Bruce Willis. That's Bruce Willis. That's Bruce Willis. <laughs> with some more hair. Yeah, with more hair. And uh, the and it, I mean, in describing the story, which was written by Harlan Ellison, right? Yep. Um, is almost like insanely focused on Bruce Willis. Like, there's almost nothing else to this. It starts in a, a bar where he's having a little bit of banter with a, a bartender, and then he says, "Give me the phone, will ya?" And then he he dials. He's sort of like. Is he trying to dial his office or accidentally dials his home? Yeah, his just home like his muscle yeah. memory, he dials his house instead of what he was trying to call, and he answers his own his home phone. It's him, and so the the whole story is about oh, there's two of us. How are we going to resolve this? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to 
replace you or I'm going to like, who's going to win this war? There can't be one of <laughs> us. And, uh, the, the horrific conclusion, um, basically he, the, the one that called fades out and the other one is the real him now. And he just disappears. Wow. <laughs> and so it's kind of like you are one part of an astral project projection of me that is fading out <laughs> and <laughs> sorry, goodbye. You lose. <laughs> yeah. Lost highway. Yeah. And, and the double, the version yep. that uh, was out this summer and, um, Dostoevsky story. It, it sounds really great on paper. I don't know that this episode was too successful. I mean, I think Bruce Willis did a fine enough job delivering the material, but it's just strangely just phone calls is the entire episode. And for a visu- visual medium, it just seems kind of cheap. Um, it would be great on radio, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't really do much. He's in a phone booth or just laying in bed with a phone in his ear the whole time. <laughs> So, so it doesn't count as a Twilight Zone episode just because it has a trick ending or a sudden right. sudden denouement because that's not all that was going there. And since these guys, whoever was writing the scripts and being the showrunner, if there was such a thing at the time. Uh, and, of course, Bruce Willis wasn't a star at that time. Uh, and uh, But it also shows that Willis has always been accommodating to science fiction plotting he 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 does uh does a lot of science fiction so um he's not uh, troubled by that or not doesn't feel it's a career career risk well i think there's a lot more to say about the twilight zone and um but uh, maybe in the next episode we'll talk a bit about uh uh black and white shows like the fugitive and uh Richard Diamond, Private Eye, which also starred David Jansen uh, as a precursor, and uh, and maybe even a little bit about Maverick, which was not about a detective story, but it, it had the commonality of the same producer, Roy Huggins, who did several uh, shows in the 60s about men on the run, and uh, says something about... Uh, American culture and men in American culture and fathers in American culture at the time. And I did not have a dad who was on the run, who was a stable uh, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. worker. But we sort of enjoyed watching these shows together because from his point of view, these were improbable stories. You know, <laughs> how can a father up, up and leave and run and so on and so forth? Because then he wouldn't be a father, and he wouldn't be. This wouldn't be a household. How could this be? But uh, there's lots of things also going on with those episodes. Because in every episode of The Fugitive, David Jansen helps some family find stability, and uh, it's just he does it uh, every other week somewhere else. So, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. If if you were listening, and uh, Michael and Justin, thanks for. Uh, participating yeah my pleasure and uh yeah thanks for having me we will uh dad have some more some pulp soon <laughs> <laughs>